Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Ithaca in Ann Arbor, Michigan is looking for a senior quality software engineer as well as a user researcher for their search and discovery team. Both positions are remote. Sovos is looking for a UX designer in Boulder, Colorado. Vigit is looking for a creative designer in any of the following locations. Falls Church, Virginia, Durham, North Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, or Chattanooga, Tennessee. BuzzFeed is looking for a senior product designer for the BuzzFeed News team. This is a remote position. Hologram is looking for a head of design systems. This is a remote position for here in the United States. Johnson & Johnson is looking for a content strategist in New York City, as well as a naming expert for a project in their consumer packaged goods division for a remote role. CarMax is looking for a senior visual systems designer, a senior UX researcher, and a senior product designer. These are all remote positions. George Mason University is hiring graphic design faculty for the George Mason University School of Art in Fairfax, Virginia. And lastly, NWEA is looking for an experienced design lead for school improvement services. This is a six-month contract to hire position, and it's open for remote candidates as well as those in Portland, Oregon. Did you know that for just $99, you can post your job listing with us? It'll be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you once again about our annual audience survey. Now, as I've said before, Revision Path has been around in these podcast streets for a long time, for over eight years now. That's a lifetime in podcasting. I mean, think about some of your favorite shows and how long they've been around. As we've grown as a show and as a platform, we've always taken in audience feedback for topics, for guests, and pretty much anything else. So whether you're new to the podcast or you're an old fan, we want to hear from you. Head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to take this year's audience survey. One lucky respondent will win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. Now, the survey ends on May 31st, so you don't have a lot of time. We'll also tweet about the survey. We'll put it on Instagram, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes for all of the episodes this month, so you won't miss it. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. 
Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. All right, let's get to this week's interview. I'm talking with artist and designer Joseph Coulier, founder and co-director of The Black School in New Orleans, Louisiana. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Joseph Coulier, and I'm an artist, a designer, and the founder and co-director of The Black School. How are you holding up these days? Good. I am good. I just recently moved from New York City. I lived in Harlem for about five years in New York City, uh, Brooklyn before that, about five years. So I just moved to New Orleans after 10 years in New York. And I think I'm much better because of it for a lot of reasons. Like, you know, it's been a pandemic and people have been like trapped in in small apartments, in cold climates, and it's good to get away from that. It's good to be closer to family, you know? It's, mm-hmm. I see my family a lot, even though I, I live in a different part. I lived uh, in a different part of, of the country from them. I would come home, like, holidays and summers, and that was difficult, not being able to see my family. So being closer it makes it like so much easier. And trees and sunshine, man, it, <laughs> it goes a long way. Like <laughs> it goes a long way. So and good food and good people and good music, everything that makes New Orleans great is like healing me at the moment. You know, mm. at this like traumatic moment for all of us. Yeah, I want to go to New Orleans so bad. <laughs> I will. As soon as all this pandemic mess is over and I feel comfortable jumping on a plane, I want to go to New Orleans. Yeah, hopefully sooner than later. I know you've been away for for 10 years, but does the city feel different to you now? It is very different. So to be clear, I moved to New York from Houston. So I was living in Houston at the time, but both of my family both sides of my family are from New Orleans. So I would always be here, you know, holidays, summers, things like that, or whenever a birthday party, a family reunion, just to come down and see family. And like, I think New Orleans is going through a lot of the things a lot of black cities and black communities around the country are going through. Like there's, there's gentrification. There's like new things happening in the city for better or worse. And I think a lot of people, you know, feel frustrated because they're not being included in the decision making of the new thing or the new thing is coming. And that means you have to leave, which is, you know, messed up. There's a lot of displacement in New York, New Orleans. And in a way, it's like a little bit more kind of accelerated due to like 
the aftermath of Katrina and the displacement that that you know man-made disaster created. So it is very different, but in a way, in a lot of ways, it's still the same. Still, this like you know, this deep blackness, this deep love, this deep creativity that is like just baked into the city that. I don't think gentrification is is strong enough to ever change that Mm. or anything, natural disaster, anything. I don't think it's it's strong enough to change that. How has it been kind of, you know, working and moving through this pandemic? So that's a... (laughs) Was that a loaded question? a, A layered question, a layered question. Okay. So what does that mean to me as like a, a husband and a, a father? What does that mean to me as like a designer, an artist? What does that mean to me as like a, a person that creates platforms, a person that brings people together to exchange knowledge? Like, first, it's, it's been difficult, but not insurmountable. Like, our family, we found ways to like make the best of it. You know, we found ways to still have romance, like between me and my wife. You know, we have our indoor dates or our like out in the park dates. We found ways to like meet with folks, meet up at the park, chill on the porch, chill at the patio, things like that. And as like a a kind of artist and designer, it's been a shift. It's been like, for me, it's been less about making work and showing work. And more about like purpose, more about spirituality, more about like laying foundations. Before the pandemic, we were rolling. I talk in the we because uh, I don't do this work alone. My wife is my partner in life and in our endeavors, our ventures in the world. Shani Peters, she's an artist very much in her own right, just doing really big things. And I also just the work I do is very collective. You know, I bring people together to work on issues and problems much larger than one person could address or or transform. So this slowdown gave us the opportunity to refocus and think about the long term vision for the work. The black school is it was in New York. It was functioning as this this kind of school that was mobile in architecture. So we would like attach ourselves to hosts. So like other schools would be high schools, middle schools, youth organizations, art institutions. And we would do programming and collaboration. And now we couldn't really do that. We couldn't get people together. I mean, we shifted some stuff to Zoom, but it's only so much that could shift and keep going the way the world was turning. So we shifted to thinking about where we wanted to take the organization. So after like all these years of programmatic success, doing the art school, doing the Black Love Fest, doing the design apprenticeship, we felt like we really needed a space of our own. So that meant like sharing that idea with the people and like being like, yo, what do you think? Is this something you would support? The response we got was like an overwhelming yes. Like folks came out of the woodwork. We ended up 
raising 300K to build a community center in my hometown of New Orleans. We've raised money for staffing the school. We've you know, made all these connections of like people who want to support in any way they can. So long answer, long. The shift, the slowing down, the rejiggering we had to do to work in this moment meant that we had to do some deep thinking and some deep like listening and have some deep conversations to really think about, okay, we're standing still. How do we see the future? Like, how do we want to see the future? Because we have a moment now to really think about the future. And yeah, for us, that meant moving to New Orleans and trying to build a school, trying to build a radical Black art school in the Seven Ward. Let's jump more into the into the Black school, because I've been hearing about it for years now from different really? folks, folks who I've had on the show. Yeah, I was a mentor at, well, I guess you could call it a mentor. I don't know. I think they called it mentorship at New Inc. in New York City. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's where I first heard about it, but I definitely heard about it during my time kind of mentoring and helping advise folks there. So I really want to learn more about, in essence, like what this radical black art school is all about. So for those who are listening who may not know, can you just talk a little bit about the school and its mission and we can sort of dive in from there? The black school is an experimental art school that teaches young folks and old folks black history, design, activism and the idea is radicalizing our people to envision a future where we're not just like tolerated but a future that we create that we build with our own hands so it's a radical black art school and now there's a lot of different principles that the school follows among them self-love prison abolition Mm -hmm environmental justice, LGBTQIA rights. How are these principles reflected to students? Well, the the principles were developed by students. The first workshop we did was we did this community-engaged research. This high school in Brooklyn, we went around the, like, surrounding area in within the school, and we asked folks what you love about your community what you want to change about your community and what the black school should teach. And based off of that feedback we got from folks, we did this, this principle, this platform creating exercise where we just went through, you know, the, the things, the issues, the ideas that folks are raising. And then we distilled them down into like these overarching principles And we've continued to add as we go, especially like looking back to ancestors, you know, the history, the things that were laid, you know, down for us before we even got here. And we we took those kind of principles and built this this larger kind of, I guess, rubric, you know, to learn from. And yeah, that includes self-love. It includes Black love, more specifically. It includes all the the guiding principles of many different Black radical organizations. You know, we took inspiration from all these different ways, like Black radicalism has popped up through, like, 
feminist initiatives, queer initiatives, art movements. And that's kind of how we came up with the principles. And we share those back in our card deck. We share them back in our website. We share them back in the topics we explore in the school, you know, so maybe a workshop will be based on this one principle or these two principles. We are making sure our young people know what we stand for, know something that possibly they can stand for. And in our aware of a political language to describe the experiences that are happening in the world. So they may see white folks from out of town moving into their grandmother neighborhood. They may see the cost of living in that neighborhood going up. They may see the bodegas start to sell different things, but they may not know what gentrification is. And they may not know the history or the tactics that folks have used in the past to fight those issues. So it's our idea that we create like learning tools and learning opportunities to share that back with folks so so they can know what to do, so they can know they don't have to recreate the wheel every time they see a problem. They can just build on what's already beneath them. And now the the interesting part about the school is that it also contains a design studio. Is that right? Yeah. The Black School Studio is full service design firm. We do client work. I'm traditionally trained as a graphic designer. It was a matter of like seeing the teaching that I'm doing since I graduated as not just like something I do on the side, but at the center of my practice. And the studio allows me to do that to like the great extent. So we do client services. We have like experience upper level designers, but we also have apprentice and the design apprentice, they are young folks, high school age, who have no experience in graphic design. So we teach them the basics, the fundamentals of graphic design, typography, image making, grids, all of those um, you know, fundamental things. And then we teach them Photoshop you know, illustrator in design. And then once they know just those basics, then we put them on actual client projects. So they're learning on a job from seasoned designers. And we're collectively creating too, because I mean, what company doesn't buy and sell trade on black cool? What company doesn't use black youth culture to like move their message forward or sell their products? So it's our idea that, like, instead of having all these people come into our community, take the things we create and sell them back to us, how about we talk to our community? How about we communicate with each other in the ways we know how? And how about we harness the power and energy of Black youth culture, you know, a culture that has made it all around the globe and back in Right now, Black youth culture is the culture. So how about we harness that power? And that's the idea. That's the vision behind the design school being rooted in a school. I mean, that's the vision behind a design firm being rooted in a Black school. And so how do the, the studio and the school work together? Like, does the studio help fund the school or, or what are some, some ways that they work together? 
that's the vision. Okay. So when you're doing this type of work, it becomes very easy to become very reliant on grants, donations, and that may be fine, but like what happens when funding trends change? Mm-hmm. Right now, black people and black liberation is kind of a hot topic, but 10 years ago, it wasn't. We were in a post-racial society. So what if we go back to a post-racial society, quote unquote, and these foundations start funding other causes, other issues, you know, more aggressively? I mean, is what we're doing really self-determined, if that's the case? In my opinion, the answer is no. Not to say, like, the money we get from foundations isn't cool. Like, that's our money. That's the money our great-grandparents, the wealth our great-grandparents that have generated for this country. But, like, being realistic, we need our own. I believe in Black nationalism. I think we need our own everything. But we definitely need our our own sources of revenue if we're going to run a sustainable organization. So the idea from the design firm is the design firm can generate income, earn income, and fund the school. Now, it's like two years old, so we're not there yet. We're still Mm -hmm. kind of trying to figure out how it works, you know, how it functions. But yeah, that's the idea. But the the school and the design firm, they're kind of like tied together. Yeah. We have students from the art school that come through the design firm. Students that show a little bit more interest, students that maybe want to learn more about graphic design specifically. Students that may need like, you know, opportunity to make some money, like need a job, a seasonal job or something. This is our way of like generating income for our community because it would be irresponsible to go to black youth and be like, there's a a economic future for you in art. Because honestly, I'm a professional artist. My wife's a professional artist and it's hard to make money out for art. It's hard for us. We do all these other things and generate income in all these other ways. So I wouldn't feel comfortable setting some young people that come from disadvantaged background that are economically oppressed. I would be irresponsible to tell them, you know what? You can make a a living at art. I mean, you can, but I need to give you the tools. I need to give you the map and the pathways that I found to make a living at art. And design is one of those pathways. Right. I mean, that makes sense. You want to definitely, especially with kids at that age, you know, they see a lot more than, you know, I think we think they do in terms of picking up on patterns and behaviors and stuff like that. And it is one thing to say, like, yeah, we're the black school and we want to do these things. But then also, or even as you're saying, like making money as an artist, but then having to do these other things to, you don't want to lie to them, essentially. Yeah. I don't want to send them out in the world unprepared like art schools do, you know, like like what we call real art schools do, you know, Mm -hmm. send their students out in the world without necessarily the tools to do the most basic of things, you know, yeah, sustain their lives. It wouldn't be a radically black art school. It would be just an art school Mm -hmm. if we did that. So we, we do pay our students, you know, it's a very different way of looking at schools. We pay our students to learn. 
because we believe our students need it. If you're not flipping burgers or stacking grocery shelves, how are you going to generate income for yourself, for your household? If we're asking you to come spend this time with us, learn about black politics, learn about art and design, learn about like the nexus where they meet. Yeah. We have to like be realistic about what the needs are of our, our young people while yeah. they are not care. Do you find and, and this might I don't know, this might be a silly question. I'm I think basic some of this off of my personal experience, but as you've been doing this, have you been getting a lot of black community support financially? Yeah. yeah. So we did a crowdfunding campaign to go fund me. I mean everybody supported. Black, white, Asian, Latinx, everybody supported, like saw the vision. But a lot of our support was from black folks, monetarily, just connections we made. Like the black folks at Adobe reached out. We like folks that work there. Um, Yeah. It's like we find ourselves in very different places and we find ourselves with like a lot of resources that the story being told about us is like we we all come from a lack, but there is a lot of resources in our community. So folks have showed up with those resources, made what we do even possible. If it wasn't for the black community, they would be no black school. Now, as we're recording this, and it's, it's interesting because we were supposed to do this a while back, and I know you were, were moving and everything had a bunch of stuff kind of going on, but I had written back then, and just so so people listen, this was like, when was this? Like about the fall last year, I think, we were supposed to record initially. I wrote down about how several major cities in the U.S. have been protesting against the death of black people at the hands of police. Fast forward to now, same thing. And then you, of course, have all these companies that are like committing themselves to at least saying Black Lives Matter, although it's now been shortened down to BLM, and I feel some kind of way about that, <laughs> about mm. how, how quickly people just sort of roll it off the tongue. How are mm. you talking about these things at the school? That's funny that you say it, because there is like this, this linguistic activism in mm. saying Black Lives Matter. I never thought about that, like shorten it to BLM defeats the point. Yeah. But... Yeah, you're right. You got something there. But I'm sorry. I was distracted by what you, what you just put on me, that Jim. <laughs> you again, the end, the end of your question. Yeah. How, how are you talking about what's happening now? Like, I guess I could say to black people, but there's a lot of shit happening to black people right now. But mm-hmm. I'm speaking specifically about like, people protesting at the, against the death of black people at the hands of police companies that are now, you know, kind of coming on and giving their support and saying that they support black lives, even if it's just for, for show, how are you talking about these sort of metacultural things at the school? I don't, how are we talking about it? It's hard for me to say specifically to this moment, but generally like, it's been a while now that it kind of the light bulb came on for me. And I realized that, OK, history is a cycle. And you say like, oh, from fall to now we're in spring, like 
these this cycle has like turned over once more and now folks are in the street and companies are pandering pretty much to the movement the same way it happened this past summer this happened when i graduated from pratt like around that same time while i was at school i was in graduate school for design and trayvon happened Mm. and and it was there no it wasn't there that happened i Everything that's happening now is happening to a lesser extent. It's more intense now, but it was happening. Then Eric Garner happened a couple years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the cake, I'm, so I'm referencing George Zimmerman getting off because that was a moment for me because I didn't see that. I didn't see him getting off. Yeah. If I only looked at history, of course, he was getting off. There was no way he was going to jail if I looked at history. But we get into these like these moments where we just forget about history. Like everything's out the window. We live in a new world. But history tells us like this cycle of like black people being brutalized comes to a boiling point. And black folks said, no, no more. And white folks say, okay. Let's figure this out. Let's make this right. Then time passes. White folks stop caring. Black folks continue to be brutalized. Boom, cycle continues. Mm -hmm. That's why the black school exists. To be like 365, you know, every day of the year to yell that we need our own. There how many times are white folks going to have to tell us no before we realize the answer is no? You want your freedom. You want your justice. You want, you know, economic opportunities. The answer has always been no. Like we ask, they say no. We ask, they say no. We ask, they say no. And the cycle happens where the no's are replaced to maybe the nose are replaced with, okay, give us some, some time. The nose are replaced to later. But it's it's always behind all of that facade. It's always no. So I'm still like this moment still weighs heavy on my shoulder. It's not like it doesn't affect me anymore. But I know that this is just a cycle. I know they're not gonna stop killing us. I just know it. And it's not because I'm a psychic. History tells me, you know, yeah. 400 years in this country. Tell me if I open up the books they wrote, it's going to tell me. Mm-hmm. So I just got to take that no and say, OK, I'm going to build with my people. Yeah. You know, and my vision and my what I would love to see in the world is a black nation for, you know, black Americans. There's. Of course, there's a lot of black nations in this world, but a nation for black Americans. That's my goal. And if that's not the answer, cool. But that's the direction I'm walking in. Mm -hmm. Like we need all of it. It needs to be ours. What that looks like, I don't know. But we need our own. What does it look like to center black love in a learning space? I think it looks like, you know, we all have seen it in our own experience. 
like maybe it's learning from your mother over the kitchen table or maybe it's learning from a, a grandfather out in the, the garage in the driveway. There's all these ways we learn in our community that are like rooted in love and rooted in care and rooted mm -hmm. in blackness. So I think we can look to that, go back to history. We look to our personal histories and like, okay, what kind of learning spaces felt loving and felt effective? What kind of learning spaces worked for me? You'll probably think of your living room. You'll probably think of your kitchen. You'll probably think of your backyard. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're taking inspiration for the architecture of the school. And whether that be like bricks, you know, or just like how we're structuring the curriculum, how we're exchanging where we're in this space, mm -hmm. how we're talking to each other, how we're laying out the desk. <laughs> you know, we don't even have this, you know, because when I think about the ways I like to learn, it wasn't in the desk. You know, yeah. it was over like a, it was maybe over a work table, you know, maybe it was in an artist studio and it was over a work table. Maybe it was like in a circle on the floor. It's all these other ways that are not being showed or even explored in the conventional school. One way is like asking folks what they want to learn, not like walking into a space with any assumptions. You know, so before we start a workshop, we ask our, our students what you love about your community, what you want to change about your community. And we may show up with like, screen printing supplies or collage materials. We may show up with, with, with part of the workshop, but the rest of it, like what we're making, why we're making it, who we're making it for, that comes from the students. So we, we, we're sharing the skills we have and the resources we've been able to generate and acquire. But, you know, it is an exchange. Like they're sharing their experiences. They're sharing their needs. They're sharing their passions. And that's the learning community. It goes both ways. It's not a, a teacher at the front, students lined up at the back. They are empty vessels. I have the knowledge. I put the knowledge into the empty vessels. They go out into the world, rinse, repeat. It's not like that. It's really about, okay, you know about this very specific thing in the world. I know about this other very specific thing in the world. Let's put it together. And what could we build? You know? mm -hmm. Now, there's a third part to the black school. I know we talked about the actual school itself. We've also talked about the studio. There's this, this sort of third component to the ecosystem, which is events. How have you been able to, to keep that going, even with this sort of pandemic that's keeping people apart? We haven't kept it going. We have done workshops, which is events, you know, yeah. but specifically Black Love Fest, our music festival we do. We just paused it, you know. Right now it's going on the second year. We do it every summer. So last okay. summer we didn't do it. This summer we're not doing it. When it comes back, it will be in collaboration with the New Orleans African-American Museum. So it'll be in New Orleans. The past three years, it was in New York City two years, and then Houston at Project Row Houses. If you're into the Black School and the work we do, check out Project Row Houses if you haven't already, because they are like 
they are the precedents that we're working off. They're, they're the antecedents. They are yeah. the ancestors when we're talking about ancestors that have done it, are still doing it. Yeah, we 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 essentially paused it, which was needed. You know, we retired anyway before the pandemic even came. And like, there's no sense in like getting people together and potentially, you know, hurting the people that the, the whole intention of the festival is to care for our people. It would just be a contradiction. And honestly, I'm zoomed out. I'm zoomed out. I hear you. Zoom. <laughs> so we're not doing a Zoom festival. It's not even, I don't think the intention behind the festival would even translate to Zoom. Mm-hmm. You know, the intention is like a barbecue, a cookout with some guiding principles behind it that we've talked about already. We can't recreate everything in the digital space. We can't create the real barbecue, you know, that we're trying to create in a virtual space. So it just makes sense to pause it again, do some deep listening, some deep thinking, some deep conversation, and then like bring it back when we're ready, when the world, when the world is ready for it. Yeah. We started doing, or we were going to do a live tour in 2020 with Revision Path. I had been talking to like Mm -hmm. a couple of AIGA chapters and we had started the tour. Like I started in February uh, in LA, did a show out there in Lamert Park with a local architect. It was great. Like standing room only. And when we've done past events, And I get what you're saying. Like, it's the actual space itself that becomes this crucible for fellowship that you just can't Mm. recreate over a Zoom call. Even when we've done, like, we've done events in New York, we've done events here in Atlanta. And for me, the best thing about the event is when it ends and people are still staying around talking for like an hour, hour Mm. and a half. The venues kick up their plate metaphorically right the venues kicked us out we're standing outside folks like well let's go to a bar and keep talking or let's go to a restaurant or something like that kind of fellowship you just can't do the same thing over zoom so like when the lockdown sort of first started happening and the chapters were getting back to me like oh well we can do a zoom call and we can do this i was like ah i don't want to do that like i'm already zooming enough for work and i don't want to have to try to do the same thing over zoom one because it's just it's just not the same like what i think the audience gets out of it aside from listening to the people is to actually meet up with other black creatives in their city that they may not even know about Mm-hmm. Like the fact that the event exists means that people are coming to it. And without that actual physical event, then it's like, it's just not the same. Yeah. There's a lot of things the internet can do. What you're describing, it ain't one of them. Right. We haven't figured that out yet about, you know, with the internet. So, yeah, I think the intention is to love up on each other. The vision is to create this movement that will get us to where we need to go. So when we're doing the festival in Project Row Houses, Fox News actually came by. The oh. local Fox chapter, not like the not, Fox News, not <laughs> yeah. Fox News, Fox News, but the local Fox station came by. And they asked me, okay, what is this about? What are you doing? I was like, this is a movement. This The purpose of this is to start a movement for Black love and to center black love and 
at the center of what this country is. Like, don't we deserve it? Yeah. Don't we deserve to not just be tolerated, but to be loved after all we've done to literally build this country, to expand the freedoms and the rights of this country, to fight for them, die for them. So, I mean, I was a little more and more crass. I was like, the intention is for America to pay reparation, dissolve and reconstitute under black love. I told Fox News that they did not air it, but that's at the heart of what we're trying to do. And we're using the vessel that is, you know, the cookout, that is the the street art, the public art that that's so part of our culture. That is the performative nature. You know, you dress up, we sing, we dance, we do all of these things that is like just natural to us. Our way of being, our blackness. And I think that's it's worth the wait. If it takes two years for the pandemic to subside, it's worth the wait. So we just gonna wait. Now kind of switching gears here a bit from the school, which we've talked about, you know, for a good while now. You mentioned being in NYC, but you're originally kind of between Louisiana and Texas, right? You you kind of mentioned you kind of went back and forth a bit. Mm-hmm. So being in that sort of part of the South, like, I'm pretty sure art, music, and design were kind of a big part of, of your growing up, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it didn't look like graphic design or mm-hmm. fine art, but it's definitely been with me since day one. Like this story I tell growing up in Baton Rouge, where I went like to elementary and middle school, my family, we would go to Southern University football games and like it's an HBCU. So we would tailgate. So all day before the actual game in the evening would like barbecue or have a seafood boil. And this was every weekend, which is crazy. The amount of food that we would buy, cook, eat with people. It's crazy that we did this every weekend. I'm realizing that as I'm growing up and I am doing seafood boils now, like I am hosting them or I'm hosting a barbecue. Mm -hmm. But the funny moment that I always remember is like maybe the week before the season started, my mom came home with like, a handful of clothes, you know, like the polos and the timies, the things we were wearing at the time. And like the other brands, like the the Sean John and all that and the FUBU. And it was such a moment of joy, but I can see now that, oh, I was being brought up and and like cultivated into fashion design. I was being made a connoisseur of design. Maybe that that may have been the intention consciously or maybe an intention subconsciously just to have, you know, just a big stack of fresh clothes just thrown on my bed like here. Now you set for the whole season. And like as long as I can remember, I've loved fashion. I've loved clothes. And I think that kind of introduced me to design. But when it came time for me to figure out, like, OK, what do I want to make? myself as opposed to not just being a connoisseur but a creator and i tried fashion like i 
I tried street art. I tried a lot of different things, but graphic design was the thing that I don't know, just came the most natural to me in like learning, learning about it, learning the history of it. It was fascinating to like read about the Bauhaus, read about the international style, like read about like the shifts that were happening in art and design in the world that was like creating these new ways of thinking and these new ways of making and technology too, like that also being so like closely entwined with it. And that kind of propelled me to graphic design to, to study that. But even with that, like the medium, the form making was interesting to me, but I'm like, I think of myself as the designer that doesn't really care about design. Like, I know about the Bauhaus. I've been to the Bauhaus. I've been invited to the Bauhaus. But I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> At the time, I did. But right now, like, I'm, like, way more interested in, like, learning about Orishas. I'm way more interested in, like, learning about my family history and, like, how that relates to New Orleans. I'm way more interested in learning about, like, Black radical politics the work I do is me just like taking those ways of making in those ways of seeing and just implying my interest to it. And as a result, like, I think I look a bit different than most designers, like my career, the things I, I make, the things I put out and produce with these skills. Like in a lot of cases, it may not even look like design period, but I think that's my approach. And it comes from like those early influences, those early cultivations that my family placed on me. Like I come from a line of educators. My, my grandfather, Joseph Couillé Sr., has a school named after him in New Orleans in, on the West Bank. So like there's, there's reasons for me to approach art and design from the lens of an educator. And it was like, it was kind of put into me before I even realized it was there. It was, it's been there growing up in Houston, like being, being around project row houses at the time that I was discovering fine art, it kind of put an impression on my head. Like, Oh, that's fine art. I learned about fine art in a city that took a very different approach to art. Thanks to like the folks at project row and Rick Lowe and all the artists and collectives that came together to create that vision. So in it, to be clear, Project Row Houses is an organization that started from this artist being challenged by young people in his community. They came to the studio, the folks from a local high school, and they saw what he was painting and they were like, yo, we don't need you to paint about issues happening in our community. We know the issues, you know, who is this for? Cause it's not for us. You're a creative person. How about you do something about it? How about you use your creativity and try to apply that to the issues and see if you could get some moving and shaking? So to have that down the street while I'm like in college and I'm like just starting to go to galleries and just go, starting to go to art spaces, it kind of made me think like, oh, this is fine art. When really it's like this ghetto eyes, like you know, push to the side version of fine art that hasn't really been supported in the same ways like a, a object maker 
is supported in the fine art world. So like someone who makes paintings and sculptures. So long story long, the way I came up and where I came up is like, has everything to do with the type of artist, the type of designer I am. And like, I'm grateful for it. You know, I couldn't imagine doing it under any other way. Yeah. There's been this thing that's been going around lately around this, this concept of, of decolonizing design, where I think the notion is that you're sort of introducing different sort of design cultures or, or things into a person's teaching practice or design practice in order to break them out of particular, I would say just Eurocentric design sort of standpoint. Would you say that's what you're trying to accomplish with the black school? Is, is something similar to that? Yes. And I'm just trying to decolonize, like not even in a miracle and not even in a, a metaphorical sense. Like I'm literally trying not to be a colony anymore. So my wife was talking on this call and she was talking and it was a group of folks from around the world. And there was, I don't remember the country or I wouldn't on the call to even know the country, but it was African sister and she was saying that Amer- decolonization that just, that has nothing to do with America. Like mm-hmm. Africa, we were colonized. Like what y'all got over there is something different. But really the opposite is true. I mean not the opposite, but we are still a colony. <laughs> you know, like the colony never ended. We never decolonized. Mm-hmm. So I feel like design, the tools we have to transform are tools that could use we could use to just decolonize period so yeah i do believe decolonizing design is a part of that we got to learn about the contributions of black folks to the design discipline but we also have to learn about the contributions of black folks period you know we got to learn about the contributions of black folks to revolutionary thought we got to learn about the contributions of black folks to cultivating land, to building economic engines, systems. And I think that that would help you as a designer, of course. But I think it would help us to the eventual goal is like liberation, freedom, justice, these bigger ideas. Because I think I think design has that power. Like I have a deep faith in art and design, not the art world or the design world, but, you know, the actual mechanisms, methodologies, you know, the act of creation. I think we can not only make it look sexy as far as revolution, I think we can make it look good because we have the skills to do that. But I also think we can do it if we use design in ways that are decolonized, you know, it doesn't have to be all about client services, you know, that can generate revenue, that can generate income, that could generate like economics in a community. But it also can be about like, there's an issue of gun violence, you know, maybe we can design our our way out of that. And it's not going to be about typography. But like, there's a certain set of like, perspectives and approaches that we use in design that can translate to bigger problems we see in our communities. 
what is it that that keeps you motivated and inspired these days? I mean, I feel like, and just for people that are, are listening to this, we're recording this the week of April 19th. We don't really know, both Joseph and I don't really know kind of what may transpire the next few days that by the time you listen to this podcast might have already set some shit off. But like, <laughs> it's a rough time for black folks right now, which is an evergreen statement these days, but like what keeps you motivated to keep going? Family for sure. Like baby got to eat, you know, so (laughs) got to get up and and do what you got to do to make sure that happens. I just got this book and I just came back from Jackson, Mississippi free, free by Edward Onachi. I think you pronounce it. And it's, inspired by another book of the same name, Dr. Amari Obadeli. And Obadeli is was a part of this like this black radical organization called the Republic of New Africa. And their vision was to take the the southern states of the United States, so from Louisiana to Georgia, and build a independent black nation, which is like one of the most creative, imaginative visions I've had or I've witnessed for Black liberation. I'm super inspired by the work of those folks at the moment. Like, that's what I've been reading about. I just came back from Jackson, Mississippi, where they tried to get it going. And we obviously don't have a Black nation in the borders of the United States. But they, they got like, they've or folks inspired by that movement have like bought all of these properties in West Jackson. We're staying at this cooperative cooperative for new West Jackson that owns 67 properties in the hood and they're building farms, they're building housing, you know, they're building economic engines in the space to like employ people to bring money to the space that has been, all but abandoned, you know, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Like it's Jackson is the capital of Mississippi. Yeah. And if you drive around Jackson, you, you come away with the the clear idea that white folks in Mississippi don't care. They do not care that it's their capital. <laughs> it's like <laughs> 90% black in all you got to do is roll through West Jackson and you can see how much folks do not care. You would think, oh, this is an image of this state that we are projecting out to the world. Not That does not matter. Not to the white folks in Mississippi. And this cooperative has, like, you turn the corner onto the block and it's like just walking into an oasis after walking through, you know, hundreds of miles of desert. Like it's it's beautiful. The houses are beautiful. The land is beautiful. The people, what they're doing, their vision for the world is beautiful. Um, so that's one of the things that has inspired me. I've really been into kind of reconnecting with Afro spirituality, Afro spiritual practices. So like the hoodoos, you know, and the voodoos and like, Orisha based, like Yoruba kind of religious concepts. That's been super inspiring to me today. I mean, for the last you know couple years, but 
right now it's it's something i like wake up thinking about going to sleep thinking about it's a lot of different things like i'm kind of i get like my mind goes and gets pulled in a lot of different directions like yesterday i just got my tufting gun arrived in the mail you know what a tufting gun is it's like a a rug creating machine okay and it looks kind of like a gun but the gun like shoots yarn through through like a a backing fabric like uh-huh. the fabric you would use to make a rug so like that's one thing that i've been super inspired by and in that is buying that comes from my like steel love and interest in fashion in is showing up in my practice as like I've been making these textile art works lately for the last few years now. So like I'll I'll create a collage in Photoshop, print it out on like fabric, and then like sew it together or, you know, make some new kind of construction out of it, some new kind of architecture out of it. So that's like super inspiring to me. Riding my bike is super inspiring to me. My wife and daughter. I lack no shortage of inspiration, which is a good thing and a bad thing because it distracts me from like finishing one thing. So mm-hmm. like get super excited about something, then move to the next thing, then move next. But I'll, I'll always come back. Yeah. Is there been a piece of advice that has stuck with you over the years as you've gone through life as you've built out the school and everything? It's hard to call anything to mind specifically. I think there's like lessons, you know, learn that that may not like be succinctly wrapped up in like statements of advice. But certain lessons like you damned if you do, you damned if you don't, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which 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 sound depressing. But it's taught me that you might as well just do what you want to do because either way, you're going to end up at the same place. So you might as well just say F it and like be who you want to be, do what you want to do, because I mean, you could fake it and be unhappy and still not reach where you are meant to reach. Or you could just live in that thing and deal with like the initial discomfort of like just being in your skin and being who you are. But I think eventually you will, you know, end up where you need to be. I really believe in purpose. Like right now more than ever, because I've been forced to sit down and think about that a lot. I believe what's meant for you is meant for you. Can't nobody stop or take that. But it, it takes time for folks to like really figure out their purpose. And it's not just like a, a goal. It's like a moving target. So I, I, I say, like, figure out what that is for you and live that unapologetically. Like, just go hard. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? How do you want to? I imagine, of course, you'll still be wanting to, to build out the school. But like, what does what does 2026 look like? Whoa, I think I need to put some pen to paper about that like very soon but hopefully the school not hopefully what it looks like is the school will be built you know will be functioning doing art and civic engagement initiatives 
with our local community. So that may look like art design workshops or apprenticeships or like a community garden where like we're feeding ourselves food from the land. Hopefully it looks like me, you know, still creating, making things. So I'm a person who I think of myself as a person who does two sorts of things like a, or artist or designer does two sorts of things like I make things, object making, and I make experiences, platforms, producing and sharing knowledge. And I see those as two different kind of sides of a coin. And hopefully I have a balance. Right now, it's real tilted towards like the platforms, you know, the community building. But I would love to spread it out a little bit more evenly. So hopefully the black school is up and running to a degree where it's like, you know, second nature. Like we, we have our rhythm, we have our stride. So it allows me, frees me up to do all the things, follow all those inspirations and passions and pursuits that kind of make me happy and, and fill me with like, joy and and fulfillment Mm -hmm. well just to kind of wrap things up here where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online on instagram you can follow me at joseph kuye first name last name or at the black school on their interwebs you can go to my website josephkuye.com or the black dot school not dot com, not dot org, dot school. So the black dot school. All right. Sounds good. Well, Joseph Coulier, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, thank you for thank you for talking about the school and really how you've built it out, what you're trying to do in the community. I'm glad that we were able to spend a lot of time really like diving into what it's about and its structure and, of course, what you're trying to do in the community. I think it's something that is super important, and I really want to see kind of where this goes from here. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Appreciate what you do, like you building this platform for folks like us to – to share knowledge, share experience, share space. It's super appreciated. Big, big thanks to Joseph Coulier. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Joseph and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. 
So what did you think of the interview? As a matter of fact, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Talk to us on social media. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't, we haven't had a review in a long time. It would be great for me to read one of your five-star reviews right here on the show. I mean, let more people know about Revision Path because the more people that you tell, it really helps us grow and reach people all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.